0: Hello and welcome back to The Indeed the podcast from the newsroom of the Santa Barbara Independent. I'm your host, Molly McEnany, and this week we're covering the Ukraine-Russia conflict from a local lens. But before that, the Santa Barbara Culinary Experience, in part with the Julia Child Foundation, is hosting Taste of Santa Barbara, which runs May 16th through 22nd. I spoke with Executive Director Todd Shulkin about Julia Child's relationship to Santa Barbara's culinary history, the events being put on this week, and the legacy of simple cooking. So Taste of Santa Barbara is this week and hosted in collaboration with the Santa Barbara Culinary Experience. Can you share a bit about the Julia Child Foundation's contributions in putting on this event?
1: Yeah. So this event has a kind of a long history in the making. It's essentially a new event, but it dates back to a collaboration between the Julia Child Foundation and the Bacara Resort and Spa. And so for four or five years, we did a Santa Barbara Food and Wine Weekend hosted at Bacara. Some things changed. It kind of ran its course. And when that ended, one of the things we always wanted to do is sort of be more central and be more of a broader, like sort of gathering, of many different facets of Santa Barbara, but right in the heart of it so that we could attract a bigger audience and make it more convenient. We had reworked together and we formed this entity, the Santa Barbara Culinary Experience, to be a kind of convener of local talent, as well as also hopefully using the foundation's uh, connections to recruit national or even international talent to Santa Barbara. And we had everything arranged and planned for 2020. And we were going three days before the world locked down. So we had kind of proof of concept. And in fact, a couple like pre-events that actually happened and we're finally able to come through it all and do it for 2020. We've refined it and made it a little bit more narrowed down. We felt like we had a proof of concept. There was so much engagement from all facets of the food and hospitality communities in Santa Barbara that we said, oh, well, we really have something there. We're going to stick it out. And over the course of the pandemic, what we did is some virtual programming to highlight different members of the food, wine, and hospitality communities in and around Santa Barbara.
0: Totally. I mean, Santa Barbara has this huge agricultural sector that goes all the way up the coast and everything. So food is a really big part of Santa Barbara, but a part of Taste of Santa Barbara, there'll be a documentary screening, her family will be attending, and we can't forget about Paul Child, who was known for his cocktails as well. So there'll be an ode to him. But can you tell me about some of the programs being hosted, maybe some of your favorites in particular, and why do you think this ode to the Child's legacy is is rooted in Santa Barbara this year?
1: I think it's been rooted for a long time because of Julia's appreciation for that. And that goes back to actually the first Santa Barbara food and wine weekends that we talked about, because the the idea came for let's celebrate Julia. And at the foundation, trying to represent Julia's values, now that she's not here, we always think more from like, well, what would Julia have done? And what would her reaction been? And I know One of her reactions was like, I'm not interested in things that celebrate me. I'm more interested in the things that interest me. And one of the things that we know Julia was interested in and loved about Santa Barbara, was the tremendous food and wine and particularly agriculture communities and hospitality that are there. And so our refrain back was, well, what Julia would have liked would be to showcase what she loved about Santa Barbara for people who live there and people in California and beyond. And so that's what we really focused on. But we also know that the community is very tied to Julia's history there and you know considers her like a favorite daughter And so that that's also a draw. So we try to stitch all those things together. And, you know, it's not every year that a documentary about Julia's life comes out. And we just thought that would be a fun way to kick it off and kind of set the the stage. So as you said, that's happening on Friday night, and we're lucky enough to bring the Oscar nominated directors, Julie. Cohen and Betsy West to Santa Barbara, I think it's their first appearance where they'll be speaking in Santa Barbara about the film live. So it's a really unique opportunity to watch the film, and then hear from them directly as well as ask them questions. So that's one of the signature events on Friday night that kind of kicks off the Programmatic part of the weekend. It's obviously preceded by the Santa Barbara Restaurant Week, which will feature different restaurant offerings that are kind of themed from the type of food that Julia either loved at that venue or is Frenchified in some way. And then there's also uh, special Paul Child cocktails that are being offered. And then Saturday, we're really excited about this panel about sustainability in the food world called "Rebuilding the Food System." And I think one of the inspirations for that that many of your listeners may already know, but that Santa Barbara is really at the epicenter of the environmental movement and has been for a long time. Although we think that story and that significance isn't widely known across the country. And now that's been stitched together with the idea that that sustainability and climate change and environmental awareness has to include the food system, and that food is very much a part of that story, and it's a part of that challenge, and it's a part of that solution. And so we're bringing together a lot of people from across the region who are working on different prongs of those efforts, and we're going to have a conversation with them. And then actually, a Julia Child Award recipient from 2020, Daniel Nirenberg, who leads an, an international think tank on food, is going to be there to interview Congressman Carbajal who is also coming to speak about how he's representing Santa Barbara nationally on these issues and also trying to bring Santa Barbara's local contributions to the national audience. So we're trying to link all of that up and we think it's really going to be a really energizing and thought-provoking conversation. And then that, that's maybe more the intellectual side. And then on Sunday, Donna Yen, our, our fearless leader of the Santa Barbara Culinary Experiences, put together this wine tasting event at El Presidio, which of course has tremendous historical importance in Santa Barbara and in the country to kind of have a one-stop shopping, if you will, for people to taste wines from each of the AVAs, um, from wineries in each of the AVAs across Santa Barbara. And that it will kind of be a fun gathering of people who get to taste wine. And at the same time, while you're tasting, you'll be able to hear over the course of the three hours from different winemakers talking about their process and what they're growing and what you're drinking. So it's both a a sipping and, and conversation opportunity right at El Presidio.
0: And I'm glad you brought up agriculture and sustainability because I feel like environmental activism is really important in Santa Barbara, as you said. So how does the foundation work on food sustainability, not just read Taste of Santa Barbara in this event, but around the world?
1: Well, that's a really great question. Directly, it's actually not part of our remit. Julia's directives to the trustees were that the foundation to support the causes that matter to her. And the big cause that mattered to her was the food world being a professional venue and that people had opportunities to train and become food professionals in many ways. And so most of the things that we make grants for are probably farther away from the environmental movement. But a core part of our mission is to make sure that people understand what makes for good food and where good food comes from. And I think the problem that Julia identified way back in the 1960s when she returned to America was there was this disassociation from food comes from the grocery store and a factory, not from animals and farms. And that's part of our educational mission to continue to help organizations educate the public about th- that really important understanding that is is has been disconnected. So we look for organizations that we can help fund who can reconnect those things together.
0: And do you think that's something that's being emphasized at Taste of Santa Barbara, when we're talking about bringing in chefs, doing farm tours, doing wine pairings, going to wineries, really reconnecting with where our food comes from? Do you think that kind of is a central focus of, of this week's Taste of Santa Barbara?
1: It's a it's a big theme because the idea is multifaceted. One part of it is to shine a spotlight and draw more national attention to all the great things that go on in food and drink and hospitality and agriculture in Santa Barbara. But then the other thing is to convene people, and particularly the Saturday afternoon session at Santa Barbara City College at the Garvin Theater with the rebuilding the food system panel that I talked about, it's exactly to have that conversation and particularly to show how I think Santa Barbara and Santa Barbaraans are playing an outsized role in leading that global conversation. So very much so. And then we've arranged, and this was partly um, our partner, the Santa Barbara County Food Action Network, the philosophy and also Food Tank, who's our other partner, were very emphatic that It's one thing to sit and listen and appreciate and maybe open your mind or change your views or learn something new, but the farm tours are how to see it in action. And so we wanted to very much to offer both things, this sort of thinking and listening, and then the the visits to the different farms and ranches that are walking the dog.
0: Now, you mentioned earlier that Julia spent many summers in Santa Barbara and Julia Child's name is up there as one of the most recognizable chefs in history. TV chefs, too. Why do you think her cooking was so universally renowned and was especially impactful in the cuisine right here in Santa Barbara?
1: Well, I guess if you let me reframe that question. First, Julia never called herself a chef, although it's very fair because her show was called The French Chef. She would always tell you that was not her choice. That was the marketing department's choice. And I think, I'm not sure that what Julie is known for is food. I think it's really known for motivating and inspiring people to be interested in food, to value food, to care about food, and to understand it. And importantly, to cook for themselves. So I think there's kind of this, we always wrestle with this at the foundation. She's so associated with French food. and, And of course, validly so but that was really kind of only one part of her career in fact by the time she retired to santa barbara she had been really involved in promoting you know american cuisine and california cuisine and the american wine industry and a whole latter part of her career was actually not very focused on french food it was certainly i think julia had the bias that french technique and french training you know which is still pretty much the foundation of most Cooking education programs is paramount. But I think that she was also looking more widely and certainly was a very big proponent of, of California. And certainly some of the leading chefs of the of the California cuisine movement, which was all about using local and seasonal produce and the bounty in California, was something that, you know, she was very connected to advocating for.
0: Well, is there anything else that you'd like to add that maybe I missed about Taste of Santa Barbara that you'd want to bring up or what's coming for the foundation or even about Julia Child's legacy?
1: Well, I think the biggest thing I'd like to add is we really hope that people take advantage of these great opportunities because we're very excited about the programming that we put together and this sort of wide range and mix and think that, you know, we've worked on bringing people from across the country who are experts in all different facets of the food world, whether it's the directors of the documentary, whether it's Daniel Nuremberg. So we just think this is a tremendous opportunity that we feel is our privilege to offer to the community. And we just hope that people take the time to take advantage of it because we we think it's really special. We're really excited about it. And so we're, we're looking forward to the opportunity to to share these conversations, to engage, and I'm looking forward to eating and drinking as well.
0: I mean, who isn't it? The foodies are going to be coming out of the woodwork this week, definitely, especially coming out of the pandemic. This is something that a lot of people are really looking forward to. I mean, when you think about food, it's really about bringing people together. And and I mean, if you agree, I think that's what Julia's message also was. was it's not just about cooking or being a chef or making these fancy meals, but that food is kind of the life source of a family, of people, of livelihood, of you know what generations of people have been have been doing is, is growing agriculture and connecting with the land. So
1: yeah, no, I would 100% agree. Exactly. The, the, the gathering and the sharing is, is a huge part of it. And and we look forward to doing that in, in Santa Barbara County.
0: Well, thank you so much. And Santa Barbara is 100% looking forward to having taste of Santa Barbara this week with the culinary experience. So thank you so much for sharing on the Indie podcast this week. Thanks for having me. Our next guest, Pascal Beal, owner of Pascal's Kitchen in Santa Barbara, also shares Julia Child's love for cooking and was a friend of hers for the years before her passing. Over the past 16 years, she has been a prolific writer in the food world, having published nine cookbooks and countless articles. This week, I talked with her about her friendship with Julia and her tribute to her at this week's Taste of Santa Barbara.
2: So this book, which is Mastering the Art, Oh, hang on let me get rid of this got it this book which is mastering the arts. So inside here um I have I've always tucked this picture in here which is a picture oh. of Julia and I um when she came for lunch one day. And in fact when I made this is the day that I made her that souffle. Oh really that's the one that I'm teaching that you're teaching um, this weekend. yeah so that's from that that, that day. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. And I just you know i I have little keepsakes in in some of the books that, um,
0: so would you say I mean you're someone who's yeah. really taken after like Julia Child's legacy, or what's inspired you the most to pursue this?
2: growing up in England, so i'm I'm half French and half English. And um growing up in England or in, and indeed in France, um we didn't she wasn't a presence there when I was growing up i think people know about her more now but her mm-hmm. shows didn't air in europe so i think in a way that was an advantage for me when i came when i finally met her and when i you know i when i' met her one of the first things i said I mean, if i like people i say come for lunch so i invited her for lunch and afterwards people said to me are you completely mad i mean what are you doing inviting her for what are you going to cook and i said she's coming for lunch I'm just going to cook her a meal i mean it's not I wasn't overwhelmed by it. And I think I had that advantage in the, in the sense that I hadn't grown up with this, the myth of Julia. Mm-hmm. It was only afterwards that I went, oh, okay, well, maybe that was, maybe that was a big deal.
0: <laughs> well, I feel like that's kind of her whole essence is that, you know, I just spoke with Todd and he mentioned something that was really kind of funny to me is he said, Julia would hate to be called a chef. Oh yes, She would hate that, yeah. which I find so interesting, but also you bringing this up makes me think, well, that's kind of I think what she wanted all along was just to be invited over for lunch. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, we had lots of meals where I just, you know, i call her up and say, come, come for a meal. And I quickly learned the things that she liked and didn't like. She would have a way of pushing things on her plates if she didn't like it. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, I tried I mean, I, I tested recipes on her. Probably not. The, I mean, you know, why not? Right. She's, there were a couple of things that I made where I realized very quickly that that was not her favorite. There was one in particular. uh, I even remember what it was. It was a lentil terrine. And she took one mouthful and I watched her face and then I thought, oh dear, that was not a good idea. And I took a mouthful and I went, oh dear. (laughs) So, um, and I said, I'm so sorry. Let me, you know, I'm going to make something else. I think I made a quick salad after that instead. And um, she looked at me and she was, no, you know, in her fabulous voice, don't apologize for your food. Just stand by it. Mm -hmm. You just have to have confidence and stand by your food.
0: Just for the sake of of context, would you mind sharing what you do and and why you've been invited to host an event with Taste of Santa Barbara this week and the culinary experience?
2: Sure. So I have a cooking school, a little cooking school here called Pascal's Kitchen. I think of myself as a food writer. I, I write for Edible Santa Barbara. I'm a columnist for them. And I have been writing cookbooks for the last fifteen years. And um, I got um, I got to know Julia the last five years of her life. And she was actually one of the very first people who bought my very first book. We did a pre-order, and she was one of the first people who who bought the book. And I I just had this connection with her from the very the very first time I I watched a video an interview with her. And the person interviewing her said, to what do you owe your longevity? And I know she's been quoted for this many times, but she she said, red meat and gin. (laughs) I thought, well, okay, there's somebody who speaks her mind. And I just loved her. She was so forthright and very, very straightforward. And I watched more interviews with her and then watched her show and then was lucky enough to to meet her. And all of this because I sent her a jar of olives and a little thank you note, basically a thank you note to say, thank you for being you. And then I got, a month later, I got one that used to send typed cards, and typewriter, and the typed card saying, thank you for the jar of olives, which then led to a second thank you note for the thank you, I I guess a bit ridiculous, but um, which then led to meeting her. And then we developed this friendship. And then when I heard about the Taste of Santa Barbara, so two years ago um, in 2020, I was going to teach a cooking class based on one of the meals that I had made for her and featuring a cheese souffle, which is one of her favorite, favorite dishes. And at that class, we were all ready to go. And then the pandemic hit the week of the Taste of Santa Barbara. So everything's delayed, put on hold, and here we are two years later, and I'm thrilled to be doing things with this great event, which just celebrates everything to do with the food industry in this region and the Santa Barbara Culinary Experience and the Julia Tau Foundation have been sort of integral in celebrating all of those things.
0: So I know you mentioned that you grew up in England and France and the French cuisine, everyone seems you know, seems to know that it's captured Julie Child's fascination. Why do you think that is? And, and what is interesting to you about the way that the French versus the English kind of approach cooking? And how has that influenced your own your own style?
2: <laughs> I can hear all the English people gro- groaning at this. <laughs> um, yes, don't get my family. Don't get my French family started on the what English like although now you have fabulous english food Mm -hmm. um when i was a child i don't know that that was that was the case (laughs) so much you know julia traveled julia spent all that time in europe and was transformed and absolutely enchanted with the food that she encountered at the time which was unlike anything that she had encountered here and I think what she was able to translate in such a fantastic way, not just through the book, but through her shows, is that sense of culture and brought it to America. Priceless things, I mean, she absolutely understood how to communicate that to everyone here through the book and through her cooking show. And she she showed such a love of cooking I mean, you can see it in her face when she's making the dishes and, I mean, even when something goes wrong, she's like, well, you know, that's what happens, you just have to go with it. And she infected enthusiasm for French food. And, I mean, she taught very much classic, classic French food. Uh, I, When I go through Mastering the art and through her other books, it's almost as if I can hear my grandmother, because they both had a serious love of butter and cream. My grandmother came from Normandy, which is the dairy capital of France, and so her classic French sauces, a lot of crème fraîche and various other things, uh, whisked in there. And when I I read her recipes, it's as if I'm reading part of my childhood, because I see the things that she made in her books, which are dishes that I ate as a kid in France. So I know you mentioned,
0: you know, Julia was a television chef in the 1960s and that didn't really, you know, make it over, over to England, but you also have a cooking show of your own. Did you find inspiration in her authenticity, even as she gained fame?
2: Um, Well, cooking show, (laughs) that's my mini, mini, you know, I have, well, two things happened. I did the, as an adjunct to the in-person classes and to be able to reach more people, I started a classes on so i have a youtube channel and then mm-hmm. during the pandemic when everything shut down i did an instagram live show and right at the beginning did 60 days straight every day a different recipe and then I had to take a break and then um i've been doing them every week and yes you know things happen in the kitchen i mean it's live so things go wrong and you know during during the last two years you plan on doing something And I would say tomorrow I'm going to make X and then I couldn't find X. So I'm standing there the next day in front of the camera going, well, okay, X didn't work. So we're going to make Y or you can make X, but if you don't have X, you can use this. I, I think what's so great about her is that you really felt that you had stepped into her kitchen, which you did in a way and that she was right there with you teaching she was never pompous she was never she was just so real um you know it's like having a friend in the kitchen your grandmother in the kitchen or your mom in the kitchen or you know whoever but she was very relatable i think that's that's what was so great about her and when i watched that and i watch other i've watched a lot of people on tv shows and cooking shows and sometimes you just i don't know how relatable they are I think some some chefs really are relatable and you can connect with them. And you look at that and think, oh, yes, I can make that. For me, I I don't don't particularly like complicated food. I I really want to. I mean, it's all about eating seasonally. You know, I I live at the farmer's market. That's where I draw my inspiration from. And it's about just eating with the seasons, eating as locally as you, you can and making the ingredients the feature and the focus of the food.
0: And I think that's something that Santa Barbara definitely emphasizes. I mean, I know with the whole panel on sustainability and how important agriculture is to the Central Coast, what do you think about Santa Barbara? You know, Julia spending many summers here in her childhood inspired her to cook simply like that. Do you think that is kind of the Santa Barbara style?
2: You know, her um, the central theme of her cooking is very much classical French cooking, but if you look at any French text, it's always about finding the best ingredients, and that is a theme that runs throughout her books, and if you talk to any chef here, I mean everyone I know who's in the food industry here, were, we're so blessed to go to the market and have these extraordinary farmers bring their beautiful food to, to market. I have friends and chefs and different people who have come from around the world who end up in Santa Barbara and go to the market and they just stand there and go. This is not a big town, How how is it that you have such an amazing market now a lot of the farmers. also go to the LA markets and further afield, but we are really, really lucky and it it just sort of informs everything that I do in my writing in my classes, I think everyone who's here. You can't help but be inspired by what you can find locally. I mean, literally right on our doorstep.
0: Now, yesterday you hosted Two Baking Brits, which is kind of a kickoff to this Taste of Santa Barbara event. Can you tell me about the inspiration for this tasting menu and pairings that you did?
2: Yes, yeah, so Two Baking Brits, and I'm sorry that um, Sandra is not here. Um, Sandra Aduzeli is another English chef who's here. Um, she trained with Marco Pierre-White and Ottolenghi and Gordon Ramsay. I mean, she's got, you know, the cooking cooking credentials. We like to say that we met parking lot, the farmer's market that happened to be going on at the time of (laughs) standing in the parking lot, but that's where we met. And, you know, you hear an English voice, you say, oh, hello, hello, and that, anyway, that went on for months. And then we decided to do a food collaboration together, which started last year, and the result of that Food collaboration. My son said, "Well, how did it go?" And we said, "It was great. It was sold out." Um, he said, "Well, I'm not surprised. It's two baking Brits." So that's where the name was coined. And we have been doing different collaborations. We did a pop-up dinner in December, and then we did this one last night, which was a a Mediterranean. We live on the American Riviera, and so the climate here is very, very close to the Mediterranean. Julia, as you know, um, had a house in um, Provence um, called La Pichune. and so it was so, our homage to her. And so we did lots of sort of Provençal dishes, and then the, we we capped it off. Um, Sandra is an amazing, amazing baker. She has a company called Gypsy Hill Bakery. So Two Baking Brits is a sort of collaboration of Pascal's Kitchen and, and Gypsy Hill Bakery together and she made a reine de Saba, which was a Queen of Sheba cake, which was exquisite. And that was the finale to our dinner. And then Sonia Majewski from Casa du Metz, um, who I think was on your show just a few weeks ago, uh, she did uh, all the wines. We did a five course meal with wine pairings for each dinner. And we're planning more, there'll be, we're hoping to do, it's in the works, but we're trying to do a picnic in the vineyard soon. Oh, wow. And then more later on in the year.
0: Oh, that sounds wonderful. And I see that you're sitting in front of a bunch of books right now and you're a cookbook author yourself. And, and I have to ask, I mean, how how often like do you read through cookbooks? Like, what is the best way to approach reading a cookbook? I mean, for people who don't really dabble.
2: That's a great question. Um, I read, yes, I, I do have a lot of books behind me. I collect them. I, they're inspiration for me. Unlike Sandra, I am not professionally trained. This is my, the, the books behind me are my, have been my training ground and spending time in friends, chef's kitchens. I learned to cook in a sort of classic way with my mum and my grandmother. My grandmother was a fantastic cook. I mean, honestly, if you opened up a Julia Child book and you look at a recipe, that's the grandmother made. So that's how I learned to cook was cooking with her. So I, we grew up in London and my grandparents lived in France. So we go backwards and forwards between the two countries pretty regularly. And my French mum living in England so would hunt out various ingredients and cook very mediterranean food. So she had her feet firmly planted in the mediterranean and that really is the food that inspires me. So you can't always go to the country to find out about uh, the cuisine but you through cookbooks, particularly well written ones, you really get the essence of that cooking of that culture. So it's like the armchair traveler. I get to go to all these different countries by tasting the food and reading books. I mean, some people read cookbooks cover to cover. I tend to be one of those. Some of them, sometimes you want to dabble in something. I mean, I think people say if you make three recipes out of one book, that's a good average. A lot of people don't make more than three recipes out of any one cookbook. Really? Uh, Yeah, which is amazing. Um, some books are very well thumbed and have lots of bits of paper stuck in them, so they've been very, very well used. Others are much more glossy, and maybe they, you know, I would have purchased the book because of some of the images, and I get plating ideas or food combination ideas. But it's like a giant reference library for me. Like, you know, I'll I'll think of something. And I think, oh, I didn't so and so make? a dish in that way and then maybe you know what did they pair it with or is there a food combination yeah i'll come across an ingredient thing i i don't know i mean coming to america and coming here it's been an education for me and i keep always keep learning
0: now to close out i guess what do you think julia's mission was in sharing her cooking i know we talked a bit about this earlier but coming off of her mission, does your mission also align? And and what is this legacy of of cooking and classical cooking that you want to continue on, not only in Santa Barbara, but, you know, around the world, perhaps?
2: I think a lot of people are afraid of cooking. And I think people have got sort of separated from the kitchen in the sense that they didn't necessarily grow up cooking. And it doesn't have to be complicated. It, It really, it doesn't, It doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to take too much time. There are so many delicious things that you can make in a simple way that are quick. And I think if you start with that and get confidence with those dishes and then expand your repertoire and not being afraid to try new things. I mean, I think that was Julia. She was she introduced things to a population at the time who hadn't you know, obviously 1960s, 1970s. America was very, very different then. And people hadn't necessarily been exposed to all the food now. And we, now we have this sort of multicultural, multidimensional food culture in America. And that's not something that necessarily existed then. And if I can carry that on and just bring new dishes to people and inspire people to just get in the kitchen and cook and have fun and not be afraid to get their hands dirty, in the kitchen, then uh, then I think I've done a good job and I can say thank you to her for inspiring me along the way. It's it's not just about the act of cooking. I mean, the idea of cooking is that you are preparing a meal which will then hopefully be shared with other people and that act of gathering people around the table and being able to share a, a meal together and your experiences, your your day, even if it's just you and, you know, one person in the family, um, just, there is something very intimate about that. It's it's as if you're giving part of yourself to the people that you're cooking for. I love it. (laughs) I try, I try and, and share that with other people.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining me on this show this week. I really appreciate your your insight and also, you know, just the way you talk about cooking. Hopefully that will inspire other people to come out this week to Taste of Santa Barbara, try some food and, and you know, maybe come and, and take your tour at the farmer's market and see what you pick out will inspire people. But is there anything else you'd like to add about you know, not only the events this week, but about what's to come in the future, maybe?
2: Well, I have um, I'm working on a couple more books. So those will be coming along the along the road uh, soon they'll be i'll be making an announcement soon about another book project which will be hopefully coming this way in july possibly august i'm still waiting on the date on that and then um, yes the farmers market cooking classes meet at the farmers market and learn about our local food and the food culture here so many great things going on this week so yes everyone Try and find restaurants are doing things. There are lots of classes and lots of different things going on. Yeah, lots of very Julia inspired. Uh... Oh yeah, everyone is everyone is creating a Julia menu or a dish or something. Well, thank you so much,
0: Pascal, for for joining on the show. We really appreciate having you on the Indie this week. Thank you for
2: inviting me on the show.
0: As you've heard, within the culinary world of kitchens and restaurants, Julia Child has left a legacy, a tradition in America to appreciate the art of cooking at home. Local chef Sally Rule had known Julia since she was 14 and says that she was one of the most influential figures in her life. Reporter Jennifer Yoshikoshi got to join her in conversation this week.
3: Oh dear you're becoming one of the nuts and kooks on the fringes of the food industry and i realize that is the quote of. sally is currently
4: a chef at handlebar coffee roasters here in santa barbara but her resume doesn't stop there she's been cooking since she was 14 and now has about 41 years of culinary experience She was an apprentice to the well-known chef Julia Child, who once called Sally a nut and a kook for thinking about going into vegan cooking as a career. Here's more of Sally talking about her experience working with Julia Child. That's incredible. (laughs) Yeah, and so looking back at your background, I know that you used to work for Julia Child. Is that correct?
3: I can't say that I worked for her. I worked with her. I didn't actually get paid when I worked with her. I worked in her kitchen setting trays and helping her to test recipes. Yeah, I went to events with her. I assisted her at cooking classes. I was very young. I was 14, 15, 16 when I was working for her, working with her a lot. And so um, interesting, very interesting relationship I had with Julia.
4: Yeah, and so that goes right into my next question. Um, So I know Julia was known to inspire a lot of people to cook at home and to make it fun. I would love to hear about your personal experience
3: with working with Julia and to hear about what kind of person she was like. So I met Julia because I was working a summer job just pouring coffee and clearing plates for what was called the Santa Barbara Cooking School. And she came to this area. That's the years when she came to this area. And anytime when she would go to an area, she would look for cooking schools. And she saw this cooking school. And so she came and started coming to classes. And she told them, you should really have a young apprentice working here. And these women that were running this cooking school were novices to it. And they said, we don't know what to do or how to find that. And she said, just have her do it. And she pointed at me. And the lady said, well, do you want to be the apprentice? And I said, sure. And Julia said, great. You're coming to my house tomorrow morning. So essentially, she was looking for someone to do this job of, you know, when you see on her cooking show, you see all the little dishes on the cookie sheets. That was my job. She would hand me a recipe and she would say, go to the pantry, go to the refrigerator, go to the cupboards and put all, you know, measure out everything put on these trays. And so my job with her was not, I've heard of other people that have worked with her. And they were, they were older, first of all, when they worked with her. And they were going to her to learn from her. I had no idea what I was learning from her. I was just at her house every day, every single day, interacting with that woman. and. She told me you can have a career, a career, not just a home cook, but you can have a career in this industry if you want it. And I said, yeah, that's what I want to do. But I want to be a pastry cook. And she said, that's not, nope, that's not going to work for you because too many women go into pastry. And so you'll get stuck there and then you will, that's all you'll ever do. That's all you'll be known as. Don't you want to do everything? And I mean, I did, but pastry sounded so glamorous. And so she sent me to work with Alice Waters at Chez Panisse. She sent me to work with Barbara Trapp at China Moon in San Francisco. And then she put me at the Waterside Inn here in Santa Barbara. It was an apprenticeship to go to the Gavrosh in London. And that's where I met my ex-husband, Pete Clements, was at the Waterside. And I don't know her relationship with other people, but with me, she was hard on me. I was the only female at the Waterside Inn when I went there and I was 19 and I called her and I said, they're making me wear men's chef coats and they're making me wear men's pants and they're big, big on me. And she said, do they have saran wrap in that kitchen? And I said, yeah, they have saran wrap. And she said, then make a belt out of the saran wrap, tie your pants up and don't call me crying anymore. If you want to be a chef, you stay there, you stay there. And It was an interesting relationship because it's almost like she took me on as her apprentice, but she wasn't someone who took on apprentices. Yeah, she was hard on me. She was hard on me about choices I made in a good way, in a loving way. And she also told me when I was about maybe 20, 21, she said, don't use my name on resumes until you've been cooking for 40 years, then go for it. But if you use my name, then you'll get hired and you'll never develop your own style you'll never be your own chef. You know, so that was probably one of the wisest things she ever did. So yeah, my relationship with her was super cool. And she was amazing. The way she loved to cook is the way that I love to cook now. And I'm now getting to talk about working for her. I've kept that promise. I've never used her name on a resume ever.
4: That sounds very, very cool. And it sounds very special that you had that opportunity to get close to her. And she taught you to have that tough skin as a chef. And mm-hmm. she was she definitely sounds like a very influential mentor based on just all the things that you just mentioned.
3: Mm-hmm, absolutely. Julia taught me to cook. My ex-husband taught me how to be a chef. My ex-husband was the iconic chef.
4: Well, it definitely sounds like she had a really big impact on you and throughout your career as a chef. Do you hope to have that same
3: effect with the people you've cooked for and cooked with? Well, it's interesting. So I'm working with the chef Justin West right now. We're collaborating on pop-ups at Handlebar. I don't know if you heard about it, but just on Monday night, we did a pop-up for 200 people. This kid is like, I mean, I think he's in his forties or something, but he is just like a phenomenal chef, like a natural chef. And he hasn't been cooking publicly for a while because you know chefs tend to get burned out. Like something doesn't go right in your career. You get out of the business and you decide you're gonna do something different. So when I decided to do this pop-up, I see him at farmer's market all the time and I ran into him at farmer's market. And I said, hey, you wanna do this pop-up with me? And he said, oh, I'm not cooking anymore. And I said, just come back and do this one pop-up with me. So he put together his part of the menu And we worked for 40 hours last week together. And I hope that I inspire people to come back to the kitchen who leave the kitchen. I hope I inspire people to cook for people, to get in there and cook, cook for people. One of the last things my ex-husband said to me, you know, you're going to need to get out of there and get back into working where you cook for lots of people. You're being selfish with what you know. You're being selfish with your talent. You need to get back and start baking for lots of people and cooking for lots of people because that's what we do as chefs. That's what we do. At 14 years old, I was given this opportunity to find my career. And it's almost like I was trained from that moment on to be a chef. And that's all I know. That's honestly all I know at this point in my life, like that I must be in a kitchen and I must be cooking and I must be feeding people. The cook, has to be the person who gets the stuff from the farmer, from the butcher, and then turns it into something that makes sense to the diner. That's our job. It's simple as that. And that's what Julia did. That was essentially her basis for what she did. So yeah, she was influential to my whole entire life. All of my sensibility is Julia.
4: I'm glad to see how you are also becoming that kind of mentor that Julia was to you as you are to Justin now and to encourage people to come back into cooking if they've maybe become burnt out. But yeah, going back to that dinner that you hosted on Monday, I saw some photos of the event and (laughs) that ladder that you were on when you were giving your speech. Can you talk about what inspired the dinner and the dishes that
3: you served? And also, how did it turn out? It was awesome, number one. Chaotic, like dinners like that always are. You know, this is my first quote unquote appearance from like five years. I haven't done anything publicly because I've been working just privately. When my ex-husband died, they had a memorial for him and they did the whole thing, but he was a chef. There was no special dinner. And so when I came to Handlebar, I said to Aaron, I'd really like to do a big pop-up. And he said, do whatever you want. Aaron is the owner of Handlebarn. And I said, well, I'd really like to do something for the Julia Child wake that also has to do with Pete. Aaron knew Pete and he said, that sounds like a fantastic idea. So what inspired my dishes in particular was what my years married to Pete, my years cooking alongside Pete. Coming from the background of Julia Child, I handed the more Julia-influenced dishes over to Justin. The soup that we served the very first course was the first thing he ever made that was a Julia Child recipe. And then the salad course was a recipe that Pete developed for Emilio's that has just carried on and on and on. And it was the last recipe that I asked him for before he passed away. And then there was this gnocchi dough that he made when he was at Emilio's that he needed to do something for the vegetarians. And he did this beautiful gnocchi dough filled with Swiss chard with caramelized onions. And so I did my interpretation of that. And then Justin did braised oxtail in the style of Julia. And then we did a trio of desserts and desserts have always been really my extreme passion. It was when it came time to plate those desserts, I basically asked to plate them by myself. That was like my final sort of like my love letter to those two, you know, because food is, it's a love letter to people that you love. And, um, You know, when you end a letter, a love letter, you end it with like sincerely or love, you know, that's when your heart really opens up is at the end of a letter. And I've always felt like at the end of a meal is when your heart really opens up and and you're sweet, right? Everything becomes very sweet and memorable. And my ex-husband used to always put me on desserts when we would work together. He'd always say, you're in charge of desserts. Because that's when people walk away, they're gonna remember that. Even if the whole meal's crappy, hit them with a good dessert, and they're gonna remember it forever. So the desserts were three desserts that Pete and I either cooked together, or I did for him. Like so, the the chocolate orange tort was every year for his birthday. I made him this chocolate orange tort. Did did he like it? I don't know if he really liked it, but every year he seemed okay with it. And then it was a heart sablé cookie with. Harry's berries. But yeah, the dinner was, it was cool. Aaron thought I should get up on a ladder because then people could hear me. And then Justin said, I'll hold the ladder. I thought how appropriate, how appropriate for this older female chef to be up on a ladder with Justin West holding the ladder. That's how it works in this business, right? We need those strong young people that are coming up and are going to be around longer than us to hold us up because that's how cooking works it's so there's so much lineage attached to cooking and we just had such a blast doing that dinner so we're rolling it into another theme for next month and the money will be donated to the rescue mission to the men's and women's recovery program. So our whole idea is that every one of these pop-ups we do every month that we do them, the proceeds will go to a different local charity. He realizes at his age, I realize at my age is that we're not cooking for ourselves. We're cooking for the community. And we've been placed at a place like Handlebar where it's a community space, really. I mean, Aaron and Kim have developed to be a space for these kinds of events. So we're going to do it. And in July, another chef will join us. It, I mean, it's just so much fun. And in June, it will be small bites. And, and I'll do vegetable and I'll do dessert. And Justin will go crazy with the meat. I mean, it's an odd collaboration, Sally Rule and Justin West, but it it works so perfect. Just like acid and sweet. You have to have all the elements to make a meal complete. So you put like... Fiery Justin in the kitchen with Silly Sally, and you get pow, you get something that's unusual. And so it's really been a blast working with him.
4: Yeah, well, it definitely sounds like you are having the time of your life with. (laughs) working with Justin. And I love how you compared that two contrasting sides that you guys both carry and together you create such a powerful duo in cooking and producing such amazing food for people. I know you mentioned a little bit before about some pop-ups that you'll be doing in the later months. Where can listeners of the Indie Podcast find you and your cooking?
3: At Handlebar Coffee Roasters on De La Vina. And I'm there seven days a week. We do vegan gluten-free donuts on Saturday, Sunday, and every day there's something different in the case. I'm buying all my produce from farmer's market. My chicken I'm getting from, from farmer's market. We Got some sandwiches, we got some vegetable tarts. We put, put Papa's Bravas on the menu today. And so it's just, people are just coming in and buying whatever's in the case. But yeah, I'm there every day. And and, and people want to come by and say hi. There's an open window there. I love talking to people. I love talking to people about food. So um, yeah, I'm I'm there every day. (laughs) So yeah, for those of you that
4: are listening right now, um, make sure to go visit Sally over at Handlebar. And thank you so much today for joining me in the Indie Podcast.
3: Thank you.
0: In other news, this week, Indy reporter Alexandra Goldberg launches her two-part series covering the Ukraine-Russia conflict through a local lens. She sat down with U.S. Congressman Salute Carbajal to discuss how our representatives are voting on Ukraine legislation in the House. Then she spoke with Santa Barbara County Supervisor Doss Williams about local legislation and community rallies.
5: The phrase, local politics are important, rings true. Today on The Indy, we're talking about how our locally elected officials are exerting their influence far beyond the boundaries of Santa Barbara. Welcome back to The Indy. I'm your reporter, Alexandra Goldberg. Today, I'm excited to kick off a two-part series where I'll be covering Russia's invasion of Ukraine through a local lens. First up this week, I'll be discussing how our local leaders are prioritizing support for Ukraine in the political scene. Next week, I'll be exploring local Santa Barbara voices, these voices that call Ukraine home. First up, I spoke with U.S. Congressman Lude Carbajal, who represents California's 24th district that incorporates Santa Barbara County, San Luis Obispo County, and some of Ventura County, his tenure beginning in 2017. Carbajal has had an aggressive political approach to providing national support and monetary aid to Ukraine amid the war. Let's take a look at his political agenda thus far. Well, thank you for joining me, Congressman Carbajal. Today, we are talking about steps our local representatives are taking to push back on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You recently voted to pass a major bipartisan aid package in the House that provides Billions of dollars in humanitarian aid for Ukraine. Can you explain some of the details about the package?
6: Yes. Well, uh, keep in mind that uh, the $40 billion that we're voting on, that we voted on last week, uh, comes on the heels of the $13.6 billion that we had already passed uh, a while back. Uh, the previous package focused on humanitarian, economic, and military assistance. And that's uh, very similar to the package that we just passed last week, which was for an additional $40 billion. And that includes $6 billion for weapons and security assistance to the Ukrainian military, $3.9 billion to bolster U.S. military operations in Europe in general, $8.7 billion to deliver economic aid and to fund the government services across Ukraine, $5 billion to provide food assistance to Ukraine, and $900 million to support families fleeing from Ukraine. So this is a multifaceted uh, package that is helping humanitarian, uh, economic, uh, security, and for military aid and assistance to Ukraine.
5: So $40 billion, that is almost an incomprehensible number. How did the House decide to allocate this sum of money to the international crisis? Can you just briefly talk about the context sure. behind the decision?
6: Well, as as you can imagine, there are many conversations going on between uh, our administration, the State Department, members of Congress, Uh, with Ukrainian officials at all levels. And this is a number that uh, was reached in terms of the type of uh, aid that they needed to bolster the type of needs that Ukraine is experiencing at the moment. Uh, The the administration has nearly exhausted also the previous funding that was allocated uh, to send security assistance uh, to Ukraine. So this builds on all the previous investments, and it was a number that was reached after much discussions and assessments.
5: Right, and this passed in a landslide vote in Congress and then proceeded recently through the Senate. However, there were 11 opposition votes because these senators believe there was a lack of oversight. What's your rebuttal to this lack of oversight? Why were you in favor of passing this um, in the House? And what would you say to these senators who decided not to pass it?
6: Well, first of all, there's a lot of oversight already included uh, in the system to overlook uh, the investments that are being made here. But, you know, anytime you are assisting a country in a war zone, uh, it's hard to have the complete accountability that we all want and yearn for. But if you're waiting to have uh, perfect be the enemy of good, then we would never be sending any assistance to Ukraine. So I would tell them, uh, you know, it's perfectly okay to, uh, aspire to have the most accountability, but this is a war, this is an aggression, an unprovoked aggression by Putin. And we could wait to get every system in place to give them that assurance. And by then it might be too late. We might have uh, Russia completely invade and overcome the sovereignty of Ukraine. So extraordinary circumstances require extraordinary measures And this is one of those that I would tell those 11 individuals, look at your numbers. That should tell you everything of the small group of individuals and naysayers that you are.
5: Right. I appreciate that comment on accountability and such a timely issue. If we wait, we don't know what the future could hold for the
6: Ukrainians. Well, again, what I would say is, you know, don't let perfect be the enemy of good.
5: Right, right, very understandable. Thank you for that comment. And Congressman, you are appointed to several committees. One included the House Armed Services Committee. What else have you done to aid Ukraine amid Russia's invasion in late
6: February? I have voted uh, to make sure that all the banks in Russia are sanctioned, as well as making sure that the Nord Stream 2 project in Germany working with the, the German government and our administration, that it does not move forward, that we stop importing oil from and gas from Russia, and that we are putting in significant sanctions to cripple Putin and the economic engines that he relies on to fund this war. We are in essence making sure that he doesn't have the resources that continue to support his aggression. And that is something that I'm very proud of. Uh, many Much of that support has come in form of legislation that we've approved. So those are just a few. Uh, the last one I will say, I voted for the Ukraine Invasion War Crimes Deterrence and Accountability Act, which again uh, requires us to investigate all evidence of war crimes and hold Putin accountable.
5: Right, so definitely a lot of intentional action in Congress in regards to Ukraine. And when it all comes down to it, as our local congressional representative representing the 24th district, which encompasses both Santa Barbara and San Luis Obispo counties, how do you make these major decisions ensuring that your constituents wants and needs are represented?
6: Well, many of my constituents have expressed their concern and their suggestions to me. As a matter of fact, we've received over 1,500 emails just to name one form of communication uh, of which overwhelming the majority is in favor of the support that we've given to date to the Ukrainian people in forms of funding and the various pieces of legislation. and sanctions actions that we've taken all the actions that I have taken today I think reflect that listening and that follow through that my constituents want me to do and act on
5: right and you can drive down downtown Santa Barbara and see the streets just freckled with flags and signs and banners in support of Ukraine just within our city limits Are you doing anything directly to support Santa Barbara residents who are showing their support and spreading awareness for Ukraine?
6: Well, I continue to not only do what I have to do as their representative here in Washington through my actions, but through my discussions, I get invited myself or my staff to show up at rallies, to show up at meetings. And I continue to be front and center to make sure that all constituents the 24th Congressional District, have access to me and continue in the discussions that we're having. So what's great about residents of of the Central Coast is that they are fully engaged on all issues, and this is one of them, and they let me know uh, their thinking, and I really, really much appreciate that.
5: Oh, I completely agree. The Central Coast and Santa Barbara area in specific are very, very engaged in these matters. And it's really overwhelming to see the amount of support that our communities showed, especially in these rallies. Like you mentioned, you were present at some. So on a more personal note, can you tell me about why your support for Ukraine is meaningful to you?
6: Well, it's meaningful to me because um, this is a democracy that is being threatened You know, I've gone to Ukraine. I went to Ukraine in December on a bipartisan delegation and met firsthand with uh, military leaders in Ukraine. And we were told then in December that uh, the Ukrainian people had the resolve to stand up to Russia should they invade. Uh, And that was questioned uh, by the international community, whether they would have the resolve. And I am uh, extremely gratified and that what we were told by the Ukrainian leaders and military leaders when we visited, when I visited in December, came to be completely accurate and true, that they would stand up against Putin's aggression, that they would fight for their self-determination and fight for their democracy. And indeed they have done that. Uh, I have personally met, Uh, via Zoom with uh, Ukraine uh, President uh, Zelensky, as well as in person with members of the Ukrainian parliament here in the United States that have visited in recent weeks. And again, just continue to stay in touch with the leadership of Ukraine to make sure that we are working uh, collaboratively to support Ukraine in them thwarting back Putin's aggression.
5: Right. So you do have firsthand experience, not only in the geography of Ukraine, being there just this last December, but also keeping that political communication with leaders. Congressman Carbajal, before we wrap up our conversation, is there anything else you would like to add?
6: I just want to thank my constituents for being engaged, for stepping up, for being part of the solution, for letting me know how they feel, uh, their views and disposition about uh, Putin's done, provoked aggression towards Ukraine, their advocacy to, to me to make sure that we are taking the actions that we've taken, and that I have voted for, and their continued communication with me to make sure that I continue to represent their interest in Washington on this very, very important issue in that, in that we continue to advocate, support Ukraine, and fight for democracy in collaboration with our allies, and NATO allies in particular.
5: Well, Congressman Carbajal, thank you again for joining me today. Your responses and perspective on this conflict are definitely very eye-opening to see what you're doing on a national level. Thank you again for supporting our constituents and for joining me on the Indy.
6: Thank you, Alexandra, for giving your attention to this very, very important issue. Thanks again. Thank you.
5: That was Congressman Salud Carbajal representing California's 24th District. Up next, joining us on the show is First District Supervisor Doss Williams representing Santa Barbara County since 2016. Now, local politics govern local issues where some of Williams' leadership has been dedicated to the Thomas Fire, local clean energy, and public works such as libraries. But how does our local ballot have power and influence outside of our district, beyond county lines and even overseas. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Supervisor Williams.
7: It's great to be here. I really appreciate the invitation.
5: Great, well, thanks again. Today on the Indy, we are uncovering how local politics are influential on a global scale, specifically within the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Supervisor Williams, you seem to be quite involved with the Santa Barbara Ukrainian community. Can you talk about this climate of action here in the county?
7: Well, thank you. Well, I I think, first of all, we have a wonderful uh, Ukrainian community. part of the Ukrainian diaspora, uh, and uh, a few Belorussians as well that uh, have joined the effort. Um, uh, they are passionate uh, and they should be because uh, the back home in their, where they came from in Ukraine, they're fighting for not only their freedom and their system of government, their democratic system of government, imperfect though it might be, They're also fighting, in my view, for our system of government. And I think they're teaching us a little bit about what kind of sacrifice it it does take to, number one, preserve this system of government. Um, Our system of government uh, has, for the most part, only been around for a couple hundred years. And I'm not sure that that's usually good evidence that it can endure forever. and they're helping us give hope that it might endure longer um, because it's been a unique experiment in human history of liberty of relative equality uh, and at least a relative equality of opportunity and um, of freedom of the press and freedom of association that most of human existence has not had and so i think it's worth Uh, fighting for, and uh, very inspired by the Ukrainians who are, are fighting for it right now.
5: Right. And like you mentioned, this is definitely a fight for democracy and for sovereignty. I wanted to point our attention directly towards the rallies that you have not only helped orchestrate, but also spoken at. What was this like? How did you garner public attention and spread awareness through these rallies that took place in Santa Barbara over the past couple of months,
7: you know, sometimes Americans can be conspicuously forgetful about history, and so I, I didn't know. Uh, I, I I hoped that people would be woken up and want to do something, but I didn't know for sure. Um, but I've been pleasantly surprised uh, and 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 gratified by the support that this community has given to Ukraine and that the whole country has. And I think it's the significant reason why the Biden administration and Western governments have been so so quick to help is because their body politic has been supportive.
5: Right. You know, that's a good point. Americans are sometimes often forgetful, but there was such a large turnout at these rallies taking place in Santa Barbara. Quite a lot of sentiment, a lot of people gathering together wearing blue and yellow, the Ukrainian flag colors. Can you talk about your observations just by the people you talked to, uh, the stories you heard, and the overall environment of the rallies? What was it like to be a part of this?
7: Well, I thought it was inspirational to be part of it because I saw everybody from older individuals that had experienced the part of the history of uh, oppression in Ukraine under the Soviet Union. um, To young folks that you know didn't know a whole lot about Ukraine, but were inspired at how uh, vigorously and how united. Uh, the Ukrainians, whether they were Russian-speaking Ukrainian or Ukrainian-speaking Ukrainians, how united they were in preserving their democracy and how a lot of times in international affairs we see uh, the cynicism of ethnic strife, but instead we saw Ukrainians of all ethnicities rallying against the authoritarianism of Putin.
5: Right, right. And before we segue into talking about local politics and specifically what you're doing as a political leader in Santa Barbara, I wanted to call attention to at the rally, you did urge listeners to vote with their pocketbooks to fight Putin. Can you explain to our listeners why it's important to act on a personal level, as you mentioned, with our pocketbooks?
7: Well, I think that it's unfortunate that sometimes our narratives about our our effect on the world takes away from how powerful our decisions really are. You know, California is the fifth largest economy in the world. Uh, our decisions, our purchasing power uh, makes a difference. And in this case, you know, I think that uh, a global movement to, to stop buying Russian oil uh, is tremendously important. It is only partially implemented, meaning that uh, when we did the rallies, we were asking the Biden administration to say no to Russian oil, but it had not happened yet. I, I hope that we were a part of helping to make that happen. But I also think that that needs to happen globally. Uh, you know, uh, Europe right now is doing a lot to help Ukraine, but they're also buying 170 more $4 million a day worth of Russian oil and gas. And I think it's just becoming apparent to me, whether you're talking about environmental cause in California, or whether you're talking about uh, defeating Putin's invasion in Ukraine, you can't support a cause with your voice and then support the opposition to that, you can't support the system that's crushing that cause with your pocketbook and expect your voice to outweigh your pocketbook. You've got to make your voice and your spending, your values and your effect on a day-to-day basis more consistent. And to make it more consistent, myself and Supervisor Hart are authoring a resolution in support of Ukraine by the county, and uh, various organs in the county have been donating equipment uh, to Ukraine as the process has moved forward.
5: Great. Thank you for that. And you just mentioned that the county is drafting a resolution in support of Ukraine. Tell me about this. How is the county doing direct support initiatives to help Ukraine through local legislation?
7: You know, uh, sometimes these resolutions can be only symbolic. Uh, I'm hoping to make this a little bit more substantive by making it clear that we as a county support uh, the Biden administration's embargo, even though that means gas is a little bit more expensive. Uh, You know, Ukrainians are willing to, to quit their job and go fight in the front lines. We should at very least be not undermining them by buying Russian oil. And also uh, substantive in that, I really want to make it clear to everybody that donating equipment is still really important. I think sometimes when we see news about the military aid package that President Biden has proposed, that everything is going to be great. They are still short on body armor. They are still short on um, the highest grade medical supplies, they, they still have needs. And we as a community, we as a state, and we as a nation can help um, uh, every step of the way.
5: Great, thank you for that. And other than the resolution that is being drafted upon currently, what else have you accomplished thus far by supporting Ukraine at the county level?
7: Well, I think, one of the things that we've accomplished is a a unanimity among local elected officials in support of Ukraine. And that's hard to accomplish in this day and age when when people watch uh, news outlets that have different realities, right? But both Republicans and Democrats are united. People of different stripes are united um, uh, in support of Ukraine. And I think that happened by making this issue front and center. I think there's a little bit of a nervousness on the part of uh, some some people sometimes to get involved in something that involves an armed uh, struggle. I mean, it's it is it is a war, and maybe that's a little bit of uh, because of our terrible experience as a nation in Vietnam. But um, you know, the the Ukrainians didn't ask to be invaded and uh it, it is it, to me very inspirational that that despite the the differences that are at on national level locally we are united uh in support of ukraine
5: yeah you know supervisor williams i wanted to touch on again your comments about how there's this nervousness in america uh because of our past in vietnam but how nonetheless we are united bipartisanly on this issue, uh, for the most part. Now casting into the future, how can local politics continue to outstretch a hand to nations overseas?
7: Well, I think it can. I think all politics starts at a local level. And look, I I, I think it's good to have a healthy distrust of war. This, this system of government is... Is, is still a baby, you know, democracy as a system of government, the kind of democracy that our our founding fathers and, and mothers supported. Uh, it, it's been on on the earth a blip of time and it's precious, but it is vulnerable. And so I, I think it is good to be mistrustful of war, but it, we should not let that become a new isolationism we are interconnected with the world and for me whether ukrainians can um, choose their system of government and whether taiwanese can choose their system of government ultimately will affect whether my children and my grandchildren can choose their leaders as well
5: that is very powerful democracy is like you said fragile yet vulnerable at this time. Now, before we wrap up the conversation, I wanted to bring it home to a personal level. Why is supporting Ukraine and spreading awareness through your political agenda fundamental to you and how you represent Santa Barbara County?
7: Well, I, I think it also, it was hard to for it not to be personal. My uh, three-year-old's best, best friend is a little Ukrainian boy, uh, two years old, he was vacationing with his parents here when the bombs started dropping on his, um you know, on Kiev where he lives. Right when your three-year-old has lots of questions like, why isn't Uncle Christo and Troy leaving home? Why aren't they home? You know, uh, and you you answer it by saying, well, they would like to go home, but it's not safe for them to be home. Uh, It becomes very, very, very personal, very tangible, very real.
5: Well, thank you for those responses and specifically your family anecdote on how the Russia-Ukraine situation is personal to you was very touching and very real. And it's the reality. So I thank you for sharing that with me. Now, before we wrap up this conversation, is there anything else you would like to add?
7: Sure. I mean, I, I think to me, the fact that so many people, our nation has rallied um, and, and had given effective military aid um, that and our communities have rallied to give aid is so laudable. It's, it's inspirational that a democracy can't react that fast to a crisis. But it also makes me wonder if we can accept some sacrifice to, to help Ukraine fend off the invasion, if we can move fast in Congress to fend off the invasion, why couldn't we do those things uh, to fend off the most existential threat to our civilization, um, which is climate change? So it just makes me wonder what else we could accomplish if we exhibited the strength and the decisiveness um, that we did together as a nation on ukraine what what could we accomplish if we exhibited that on other deep crises like climate change um, i think we could do amazing things
5: I agree. Thank you for that. Well, thank you again for joining me on the show today. It was a pleasure to speak with you. I really appreciate all of the insight you gave me.
7: Thanks, Alexandra. I really appreciate you having me.
5: Reporting for the Indy, I'm Alexandra Goldberg.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of The Indie. I'm your host, Molly McEnany. Tune in next week for another episode.